0: I'd like to wish you all a very Merry Christmas. The epistle for the second Mass of Christmas, the Mass at Dawn, is taken from St. Paul's letter to Titus. Dearly beloved, the goodness and kindness of God our Savior appeared, not by the works of justice which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, by the washing of regeneration and the renovation of the Holy Ghost, whom he has poured forth upon us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we may be heirs according to hope of life everlasting in Christ Jesus our Lord. Please stand for the Gospel. The Gospel is taken from the second chapter of the Gospel of St. Luke. At that time the shepherds said one to another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and let us see this word that has come to pass, which the Lord has shown to us. And they came with haste, and they found Mary and Joseph and the infant lying in a manger. And seeing, they understood of the word that had been spoken to them concerning this child, and all that heard wondered, and at those things that were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these words, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen as it was told unto them. Please be seated. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, Amen. My dear faithful, one of the things that 21st century man finds difficult is to believe that there is a God of supreme goodness. And, of course, there's no real basis for this difficulty other than our own selfishness. And Christmas, the mystery of Christmas above all, reveals the great goodness of God to us in a very striking manner. And so today, on this Christmas Day of 2019, I just want for us to, to try to fathom to some degree this great goodness of God that we look at the Christmas gift and learn something of the goodness of the giver. But to do that, to understand how good God is to us in this Christmas mystery, we have to see things from the perspective of God. We have to somehow step outside of our own merely human perspective and see how things must have looked from the perspective of God. I think God was facing a situation that's fairly familiar to us, something we're all familiar with to some degree, and that is the situation of a rebellious child. There are many types of rebellious children but the worst type of rebellious child is that of the stubborn, prideful, rebellious child, as opposed to the child who simply rebels out of weakness. When small children especially are rebellious, there's often a fair measure of weakness involved. They're just sort of reacting spontaneously to a given situation. There's not a lot of malice there. There's much more weakness. And we may say it's somewhat easy for parents to deal with weakness, with children who are simply weak and acting spontaneously. But when you have older children, teenage children, or even, we may say, adult children in a state of rebellion against their parents, it's often out of some problem that's much deeper, certain stubbornness, certain selfishness, certain pride, There may be an overweening self-sufficiency on the part of the the teenager or the part of the adult, a blindness that cannot see reality, a self-righteousness that knows no justice but its own, and a self-destruction that is proclaimed to be right and good. How many times are there children who leave the faith when they reach their teenage years, their adult years, and they reach a state where it's very difficult to speak to them. It's very difficult to get them to see outside of their own perspective, Or you have children, adults, teenagers, who develop addiction, who develop a very destructive behavior, and the parents want to help them. They want to reach out to them. But it's so difficult because the child has lost all perspective on reality, is so ingrained in their own way of doing things. To help a child that is weak, a parent has to be willing to sacrifice some time and effort. But to help a child that is completely stubborn, prideful, a parent is going to have to sacrifice, in many cases, absolutely everything. And of course, my dear faithful, we are those type of children. We're much more the, the children who are ingrained in, in our way of seeing things, who are in a state of rebellion against God that that is very deeply stubborn. When God looks down at his rebellious children, all he could see and all he still sees is a most foolish blindness. He sees us clinging to our own stupid self importance. Our heads are, as it were, swollen. When your head gets blown up, you know, your, your, your eyes start to shut down. Your, your head is, is too big for your eyes to open up fully, and we le- lose all perspective on reality. Our vision becomes distorted as a result. We're lost in desires motivated by selfishness rather than than our own good. And our good God looks down on us with pity and mercy. His omnipotent power could easily fix us, but we don't want to be fixed. Our own stubbornness is, as it were, a quasi-omnipotent power, even able to block the very goodness of God, just as... The stubbornness of an adult child or an adolescent child is able to block the will for good that the parent has for that child. We're often convinced that we're good the way that we are, that we have a right to be valued the way that we are in our state of wreckage. And God knew from all eternity that he would not fix our pride with his power. That's how men, human beings, often fix stubbornness, fix rebellion, or at least seem to fix rebellion. You know, this is how the, the things worked in the Roman Empire. You had this vast, sprawling empire, and if you have people in remote regions of the empire who are rebelling. For instance, like the Jews, after the death of our Lord, rebelling against the Romans. Well, the Romans would just send some legions to the area and have the legions put down the rebellion. They would crush the people under the might of the empire. And so, take care of the rebellion. That's not how our good God chose to fix our pride by sending some army or by sending a legion of angels. He had a very different plan. Instead, he sent a little tiny child. He, the Almighty God, became a child, placed the whole of his omnipotence in the lap of the Virgin Mary. To break down the hardness of our pride, God did not choose to have a show of strength, but a show of weakness. And by this alone, just by his decision to willfully take upon himself a nature infinitely lower than his own, He already manifests a goodness much greater than any goodness that you or I can do to any person in this world. That is an act that is transcendently good. There's no way that any one of us, even if we wanted to, could assume a nature lower than our own nature. We had a group of foolish sheep who needed to be redeemed. We said, well, I will become a little ewe lamb. I will make myself one of them and submit myself to the ewe in order to try to save this flock of sheep. Even if we had this movement of goodness and desire, we would have no power to execute it. Besides that, I seriously doubt that if we had the power, we would even want to do it which of us would even be good enough to have the desire to give up our own human nature to become a sheep. But our good God does not stop with just taking on our human nature in order to save us every single aspect of the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ is designed to help us be set free from our blindness, from our own self-importance, from that pride and stubbornness that is really at the root of our rebellion against God. It wasn't just the fact that God made this incredible decision to become a tiny infant, submit himself to one of his own creatures, to be born from one of his own creatures. But he chose the very circumstances of his birth as well in order to help us overcome that number one obstacle that even the omnipotence of God in itself would not be able to fix, that pride, that pride of man that is such the, uh, the hallmark of our first parent, Adam, in which we have ingrained, flowing through our bloods, almost congenitally, such a part of our psyche, this blindness of pride. There are many circumstances in the story of Christmas that could be pointed out where our Lord specifically chooses them in order to help us not be prideful. But I would just point out two of them. Poverty and isolation. The supremely rich God wanted to be born a pauper because the pride of so many is rooted in their possessions. They think they're great, not because of what they are, but because of what they have, because of their stuff. They look at their bank account, they look at their new vehicle or their nice house or their salary. And they conclude from them, they're better than the rest of men. And God, when He comes on this earth, He forces us to go look after Him in a place of utter poverty, He was not born in a palace. He was born in a cave. He was not wrapped in royal garments, but he was wrapped in swaddling clothes. He was not transported there. His mother was not transported there in first-class transportation, but on a donkey. And this tells us that our riches mean nothing. What you have says nothing about your worth. Because God himself, who is the ultimate worth, lived on this earth as an utter pauper. And for those who think themselves great because of the attention they receive, because they're popular and famous, because people like them, you get a lot of likes. You get a lot of attention. God chooses to come on this earth unknown. Or if known, only known by the insignificant. Look at that scene in Bethlehem. What surrounds him? A lot of insignificance, at least as far as the world is concerned. His parents. Explicitly chosen by him, his mother, his foster father, insignificant people. Few animals in the cave. And the only guest to be there for his baby shower, some insignificant shepherds. He could have told the whole world, the only people who know are some shepherds. So, my dear faithful, this is what we have to realize today on this Feast of Christmas, that what keeps us from God is not your weakness. It's your failure to recognize and humbly admit your weakness. That's what keeps you from God. It's your pride. That is the main obstacle to you being saved. No one needs a Savior who thinks that they are self-sufficient. Even God cannot save those who don't think they have a need of a Savior. There's nothing he can do with such people. So God, who is so good, who is so kind to us in our state of wretchedness, he wants so much to save us. And so... He specially designs this Christmas Day as a day on which His goodness would conquer our pride, on which it would be so, so difficult for us to refuse His goodness, to refuse this tiny child being wrapped up in the hands of one of us, of the Virgin Mary. He would come to us as a tiny, tiny infant, cradled, in the arms of that blessed creature. He would come to us poor, without rich clothing, without nice lodging, without the best transportation. He would come to us unknown and unpopular, isolated from the rich and famous. This is our good God who has come to save us. This is God, the Christ child, the real God, the one who loves us, the one who is goodness itself. We must not ask for any further proof of the transcendent goodness of God when we see that God was willing to get past our false pride in this way, that he was going to heal our sad hearts through his littleness. What you see in the manger is goodness itself, a goodness far beyond any other goodness that you know. And only the goodness of this tiny infinite is an almighty goodness. So my dear faithful, make your way to Bethlehem this day. Humbly cast yourself on your knees before this child and look deeply into his eyes. Find in them the goodness of a loving God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.